0: It's Monday. Good morning. It is Monday, a brand new episode of Twice the Lutheran. Regular Lutherans go to church on the weekend, but Twice the Lutherans hang out with me sometime throughout the week and maybe even Monday morning when this posted. Welcome back. Glad to have you. Another fantastic journey together on this adventure we call Twice the Lutheran. I'm Pastor Wells. That's Wells with two L's. Because I'm Twice the Lutheran. And you're on your way there too. First of all, a word of thanks. A word of thanks to you wonderful, handsome, awesome, beautiful listeners. Without... One cent spent on advertising. All just by word of mouth. Two record download days last week. Two in a row. So thank you to those of you who have tuned in. And a double thanks for you twice the Lutherans who went the extra step twice as far and shared the show. Is this a show? You don't see anything. It's a a program. There. Now we sound like we're 70 plus. Thanks for tuning into the program. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to the show wherever you download your podcasts. The statistics say most of you are listening on Apple Podcasts, so if that's you, could you please also do me a favor and go and rate the show? on Apple podcast. Nothing less than 5 stars, please. Thank you. And if you are listening on an app that likewise allows you to rate the show, please give me a rating. All right, another request for you. I know it seems like a long way off before we ever think about finishing reading through the catechism But that day will surely come, and so I'd like your help with a couple of things. Number one, I would like to add episodes of your questions where I can just read your questions and hopefully answer them. So if you have questions or comments or observations, things that you would like to hear about that you have not, yet you think would be erstwhile for you and others, please email those questions to me, podcast at org podcast, org. And here's the second thing. So not just your questions, but What do you want to do after we finish the catechism? Boy, we could do so much. We could study so much together. We could grow and learn so much together. Send me your ideas. Maybe you have a good idea, and I'll go with it. Maybe your idea is junk, and I won't go with it. But I'd like to hear it. Send it over my way. Again, that email, podcast at twice org. I also owe it to you to finish what we have started last week that we ended a little bit early. I've been watching my minute marker, my minute counter, and I like to try and end the podcast around 45 minutes, so that means I cut us off a little early last week. Was that smart? I don't know. But that's what I did. We didn't finish yet talking about the second commandment. That commandment, again, is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We talked a lot about a lot of stuff related to the second commandment. But what we didn't finish talking about was Specifically, the content in the catechism about how to use God's name and what we must confess in our failures to use God's name. Whenever you use somebody's name, you are drawing up in the mind of the listener a picture of the person you're talking about. So, for instance, when somebody says to you, have you heard Pastor Wells' podcast? Then immediately in your head pops up a vision of a dashingly handsome pastor standing on the other side of a microphone. You think, tall, dark, and handsome, clever, witty, generous, all of the things that you associate with my name, that's what pops up in your head. Undoubtedly. Well, maybe that's being a little generous, huh? Maybe you think things about me that are not repeatable on a podcast or in polite company. That's okay too, I suppose. But what do you think of when, you, when, when somebody talks to you about God? What pops up in your head? What are your thoughts about God? Who is he to you? I hope that you draw up in your head all the things he would like you to draw up, all of the things he himself associates with his own name, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful, merciful. If those aren't the words that pop up in your head when you think of God, then I think you've probably got the wrong information in your head. About God and who He is. He's given you His name for a reason. Again, the meaning for the catechism, we studied this part. I'm sorry, the meaning for the second commandment we should fear and love God that we do not use His name to curse, swear, lie, or deceive, or use witchcraft. So that's what we talked about last time, but we got to talk about this last part here. But call upon God's name in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. So if God's name recalls everything God has told us about himself in the Bible, and it does, then... And here's the question we're picking up with today on page 55. How do we sometimes dishonor God's name by our failure to use it? Isn't that interesting? Sometimes somebody would say, well, I haven't done anything wrong because I haven't done anything at all. I haven't misused God's name because I don't use God's name. Ah, that shows our short-sightedness about sin sometimes. We're so used to talking about sins of commission, doing things that you should not do, saying things that you should not say, that we oftentimes forget about the sins of omission, omitting from your life the things that you should do or the things that you should say. See, this is what really brings... To the forefront, the, the almighty, awesome power of Jesus Christ's perfect life. Don't forget about that. Yes, we focus on Jesus' death. We call it his passive obedience. But don't breeze past his perfect life that came before the innocent death. And what makes that life so amazing is not just that it was devoid of sin, not just that there were no sins of commission. He never said or thought anything wrong. He never did anything wrong. But he also didn't have any sins of omission. Jesus Christ never failed to do all of the right things either. Boy, if that doesn't stand in stark contrast to you and me, then I don't know what does. I mean, we've even captured that thinking in the saying that your mother probably told you once upon a time, if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. Well, actually, according to the scriptures, that does not fix the problem. (laughs) It should be, if you can't say anything nice, then shame on you, find something nice to say. Uh, But that doesn't really have as nice of a ring to it, does it? There are so many good things that God wants you to say. And this really drives home the point that we cannot keep track of all of our sins, all of the evil that we've done, because sometimes it's not just about the evil we've done, it's also about the good things we've failed to do. So you cannot pat yourself on the back and say that you've kept the second commandment if you've never let God's name leave your lips. That doesn't mean you fulfilled this commandment. Because now you are proving yourself guilty of sins of omission. Because this commandment says you should be letting God's name leave your mouth, but it should always be in accord with the commandment itself. Let me give you some examples. Again, in the Catechism, I'm on page 55 if you're following along. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray... Without ceasing. Remember, we're talking about calling upon God's name in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. Can you really say that you have prayed without ceasing? That you haven't stopped praying? We're going to talk about prayer in a, in a later session together. Uh, but it... Let me first of all let you. Let me uh, identify with you. Maybe this will help your conscience rest just a little bit. Should I say it that way? Whatever. I'm going to say it that way. If you find that your prayer life goes in ebbs and flows, welcome to the club. <laughs> I mean, just go through the scriptures and read all of the times when Jesus was, was in prayer, was found in prayer, consistently and quietly in prayer. And then rejoice that Jesus' prayer life has been credited to your account. And then get to work. Get back to praying. Don't let that be don't let that be the uh consolation for a lazy prayer life. Well, Jesus did it all for me. I don't have to do it. Nope. Don't do that. That feeds your selfish laziness. But let me identify with you. I get it. We all get it. And if you don't have a prayer life at all, why not? Why not? James 4.2 kind of asks that same question about your prayer life. He says, you want something, but you don't get it, so you murder. Hmm. You desire something, but you can't obtain it, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. Isn't that an interesting concept? Why hasn't God made me rich? The first, like the first question to ask, why hasn't God made me rich? Here's a question. Did you ask him to? Did you ask him? Can I have a million dollars, please, Lord? And if you have asked him and he hasn't made you rich, there's probably a good reason, right? Do you know what kind of a jerk you'd be if you had a million bucks? But James's point stands. You don't have because you don't ask. So sometimes the answer is you're, you don't have something because you didn't hit your knees in prayer and ask God in his name if you can have it. Now make sure that you're not asking for uh, God-displeasing prayers. Can I say it that way? Don't say prayers that displease God. I don't want to talk about prayer too much right now because we'll talk about it later, but it is... Ah, Call upon God's name in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. So this does fit, I suppose. What's an example of a not God-pleasing prayer? Well, don't pray about things that you know are not God's will. And don't pray for God to help you get away with sin. Let me give you an example. Dear Lord Jesus, please let me live forever. Well, you know that's not a God-pleasing prayer. Because you know that's not his will at least physically alive forever. You know that's not his will. His will is either A, you will die, we'll put you in a casket six feet under, or B, you'll be alive when judgment day comes. But either way, it is not God's will that you would live forever on this planet. Don't pray those prayers. Lord, please help me steal from Walmart and not get caught. Don't pray that. You already know that's not his will. He gave you a commandment that said, don't steal. Okay? But there are things that it is okay. There's a lot of things. In fact, everything's okay for you to pray for as long as it's not blatantly against God's will. This is James's point. You don't have something because you didn't ask. And look what he says. So what do you do? You take the matter into your own hands. You don't get it, so you kill. You murder. You desire something. You can't obtain it, so you quarrel and fight. You complain. You try and take it from somebody else. So in an interesting way, murder and quarreling and fighting, you know what the solution is to it? Prayer. Interesting, huh? Isaiah 43, 21, the next passage, the people that I form for myself will declare my praise. It's just something we do when we talk to God, when we call upon God. I'm going to jump ahead a couple passages here. Obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking are out of place. Instead, give thanks. Boy, if that one doesn't hit you in the guilty bone, I don't know what will. Obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking are out of place. Again, the whole idea behind these passages is that our mouths as believers are dedicated to the Lord. What comes out of our mouths should be prayer, praising, and thankfulness. And so what's out of place? Obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. I know we might lose track of our words, and trust me, as somebody gifted with the Wait, can you be gifted with a gift? Whatever. As somebody gifted with a gift of gab. Man, did I butcher that. And that's like the most ironic thing to butcher when you're saying gift of gab. As somebody who runs his mouth sometimes too much. There. It's a little less poetic, but I went with it. I understand losing track of, of words, but the Lord doesn't lose track of your words or mine. So a good thing to do when you hit your knees in prayer, Lord Jesus, forgive me for the words that came out of my mouth when they shouldn't have. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my angry words, my foolish words, my obscene words. Lord Jesus, take the blame. Heavenly Father, don't pin it on me. Pin it on Jesus. There's a good prayer, huh? I like that prayer. Well done, Pastor Wells. Good job, me. All right, so if, if we now have established the fact that, oh, we so often break this commandment by sins of commission, letting naughty words leave our mouth in God's name, and we've broken this word, this commandment, by sins of omission, by not saying the good things that we should say, then how do we know we're not going to hell? This has been our practice as Lutherans and our practice on this podcast. We want to close each commandment by focusing on Jesus Christ. So how do you know that you're not going to go to hell? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know who that passage is talking about. (laughs) If you don't, you've got some episodes of this podcast you haven't listened to yet. What always strikes me about this passage, though, is how it says God made him who did not know sin to become sin. It doesn't say he who did not know sin to figure out what it is or to experience it or something like that. No, it says he didn't know sin, but he became sin. So that Jesus Christ on the cross would be sin embodied there. So that he would be the one blamed for all of our foolish words. He would be the one blamed for all our lost and stray words. He would be the one blamed for all the cursing, all the swearing, all the lying, all the deceiving. He becomes sin itself on the cross. And why did he do that? So that you and me, we might become the righteousness of God. What's interesting doesn't say that we would become righteous. It says that we would become the righteousness of God in Him, in Jesus. So that we would become the embodiment of God's righteousness. This is astonishing. That you could look at each repentant soul and say that is the embodiment of God's righteousness that you could say to yourself, I am the embodiment of God's righteousness, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and who he has now made you to be, the embodiment of Christ's righteousness. And so, of course, we say, be that. (laughs) Be, live as the embodiment of Christ's righteousness. And you'd say, well, how do I do that? What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what that means with regards to the second commandment. How does God's word serve as a guide? Remember that curb, mirror, and guide? Guide is only for Christians. How does God's word serve as a guide for those of us who want to keep the second commandment? Well, here's some passages for you. Psalm 5015, call upon me in the day of distress. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Call on God. Honor him. This is a guide. First Thessalonians 5.17, yet again, pray without ceasing. Isn't it funny how one minute ago that, that passage condemned you? You haven't prayed without ceasing. But now that we've been to the cross, we reread it again and say, pray without ceasing. Wonderful! Look how Christ has changed my view of that passage. This is a wonderful thing I can do to be the embodiment of God's righteousness. Here's another one, Psalm 52 from King David. I will thank you forever because you've done this. I will hope in your name, in the presence of your favored ones, because it is good. Be thankful. Live a thankful life. And let those words... Of thankfulness, leave your mouth to God. Dear Lord Jesus, dear God, my heavenly Father, dear God, the Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done, for everything you've given to me. And here's another high and holy way for you to keep this commandment, Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Those were the words of the apostles after they were threatened. Shut up. Stop talking about Jesus. They said, no, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. You shouldn't either. You have seen and heard the word of God. Talk about it. Share it with others. Because just as it's changed your life, what will it do for them? Don't deprive God's word of the shot that it's got. Take the shot. Share the word. Back to the catechism. Now on page 57, God's name is precious to us. In his name we find salvation. Saved. We're saved. We are invited to pray to him in every need. We offer thanks and praise to his name we tell others of the great things that he has done. So do not use God's name to curse, swear, lie, or deceive, or use witchcraft. But instead, call upon God's name in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. And that brings us to the end of our time, at least formally, with the second commandment. Which means it's time now to move on to commandment numeral trace number three. Here's commandment number three. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching and His word but regard it as holy, and gladly hear and learn it. This is an interesting commandment, and I, I think it's probably one that a lot of people are prone to misunderstanding. In fact, you have a whole church body called the Seventh-day Adventists that uh, insist Saturday is the Sabbath day. In fact, as I'm looking around here, I know that I had some Seventh day Adventists stop by my house and left me a little pamphlet. Let me see if I can find it. I couldn't find it. You know why I couldn't find it? Because my office is a mess. I tried to keep it just for you. I was going to share it with you. Well, maybe if I find it one of these days when I clean my office, then I'll share it with you. But the Seventh-day Adventists insist, insist, you must worship on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, and they will point to the Third Commandment. Look at the Third Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And they would say clearly, what day is the Sabbath day? The Old Testament tells us. It's the seventh day. Saturday, it's everywhere in the Old Testament. Sabbath, 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 Sabbath. So worship on Saturday and only Saturday. Well, is that true? Again, we have to go back to our principles through which we understand the commandments. To whom were the commandments given? And we would say, yes, as God's moral law they're given to us, but as they are written, they were given to the Jews in the Old Testament. Not to the Jews in the New Testament, not to Jews post-Christ, not to the Gentiles. This was given to Jacob's children, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. This was the command. Remember the Sabbath day, and yes, for them, the Sabbath day, was Saturday, not Friday, not Sunday. Saturday, and only Saturday. So, if you take the commandment as it's written, and you say that, then yes, if I'm a if I if I'm an Old Testament Jew, yep, then then it's Sabbath day, is Saturday. But guess what? You're not an Old Testament Jew. I know you might be shocked about that, but it is 2023. Jesus has come, the promised Savior, and. Yeah, I shouldn't say, and you're not a Jew, but maybe you are. I don't know who's listening to this thing always. But more than likely, if you're listening, you are a Gentile in 2023. So what do we do with this commandment then? Do we just disregard this altogether? And you're like, well, no, Pastor Wells, clearly not, because you're here reading it to us. Again, remember the meaning Luther gave. We should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching in his word, but regard it as holy and gladly hear and learn it. So what was God's point with the Sabbath day? Here was the point. Rest. Remember? go all the way back to Genesis, God created everything in six days, and then it says on the seventh day he rested, which wasn't because he was tired. God doesn't get tired. He's enjoying his creation. It's like after you finish mowing the lawn and you just sit back and you look at the lawn, you go, wow, doesn't that look great? You sit back and look at the garden. Oh, beautiful. God was doing the same thing on the Sabbath day. It was a holy rest. And so he blessed the seventh day and made it holy and then gave a commandment, mark this seventh day. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, it wasn't just the Sabbath day, the seventh day. There's also special commandments for the seventh year, which was the Sabbath year and the 50th year which was at the end of seven sevens, right? So at the end of seven days, which for the Jew was sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, which again plays into the crucifixion and the passion of Jesus Christ. Why did they hurriedly bury Jesus? Because the sun was about to go down on Friday, and they had to hurry up because the Sabbath started at sundown, and it ran till sundown the next day. So, no work done on the Sabbath day. Jesus, God, God wanted rest. I've had one pastor say to me, and I think it's a great, great uh, clever way to say it, the weekend was God's idea. Because we sinful humans would do one of two things. We would either be lazy and never work, or we would be selfish and overly ambitious and always work. So God gave us the weekend. He said, well, there's a right balance here. For six days you'll work, and then on the seventh day you'll rest. And there was an element of trust in that rest, right? When you rested on that seventh day and you didn't do work, which, okay, the Jews went maybe a little bit too far, and they're like, don't walk more than X amount of steps in a day, and don't carry anything that weighs too much, and don't make any bread, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, they went too far, but. At the heart was an element of trust, right? That God would allow you to have rest and that he would take care of you. So for those of you who haven't been to worship because you just, you have to work, you have to work, you have to work, don't forget the third commandment. Don't forget. Ceasing your work, stopping your work for a day is an act of trust. And if you thought that was hard for a day, how about every seven years when God said at the end of seven years, don't even plant any crops? The jubil- uh, the, the sabbatical year. This is in Leviticus 25, by the way, if you're wondering. You give a Sabbath rest to the land, and here's what it says. You shall not sow your field, and you shall not prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the produce that grows by itself from your harvest, or gather the grapes from your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land will, however, provide food for you. For you, for your male slaves and for your female slaves, for your hired workers and for your servants who are living with you temporarily as aliens working for you, for your livestock and for the wild animals which are in your land, you may eat all its produce. So there would be stuff there in the land. Just don't go plant it. It'll grow. The Lord will provide it. He'll take care of you in this sabbatical year, the seventh year. It was an act of trust. Oh, and by the way, the Israelites never did it. Actually, yeah, I don't think they ever did it. If you have, or can correct me on that, please do so. But in the promised land, the Israelites never kept this regulation of the Sabbath year. And then the Lord gave the year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year. So it was after 7 times 7. 7 times 7 is 49. You complete that. You're in the Jubilee year. And now in the year of Jubilee, all sorts of stuff happens. Read through Leviticus 25. Some would say that that's even the way that the economy, the only way to fix an economy that gets out of whack. You have to have a debt forgiveness year. That was part of the Jubilee year. You got to give the land back if you bought the land. How interesting is that concept, huh? Again, we won't get all the way into that, but remember that when in Joshua they go into the promised land and the Lord divides the land, when you get your allotment of land, that's always supposed to be in your family name. In fact, that was so important that if you died without having kids, your next unmarried brother was supposed to have kids for you, and that child would be your heir, not your brother's heir. That's how important it was. What's the picture? You never lose your place in God's kingdom, in the promised land. Beautiful for you and me. The promised land for us is heaven. It can never be taken away. Also in that promised land, it was forbidden for people to buy up all the property and own all the property and keep it border by border, uh, as, as the Bible puts it. So you could buy the land, but you only would get it for whatever, however many years were left until the year of Jubilee. So if you sold your land and you got the money for it, that land became yours again 50 years from now if you sold it on year one. How interesting. And you'd say, well, just think of all the business that went sideways. What if we forgave all the debt? What if we had to give back all the land we bought? And the third commandment just kind of says, let God worry about that. Do you trust that it'll take care of you? Then let him worry about that. Now, by the way, I'm not advocating that we have a year of jubilee or a sabbatical year for us nowadays. <laughs> it kind of sounds cool, kind of sounds awesome, but I, I don't really think it's possible. And nor is it commanded. Remember, these commandments were given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now, how were people... I'm back in the catechism now. Let's get back to the catechism. Page 59. How were the people blessed as they observed the Sabbath day? Exodus 20. Here's the commandment Six days you are to serve and do all your regular work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day shall be a Sabbath rest to the Lord your God. Do not do any regular work, neither you, nor your sons or daughters, nor your male or female servants, nor your cattle. Now, little cow lay down, it's the Sabbath day, little cow, don't walk around, nor the alien who is residing in your gates. And by the way, isn't that interesting? The Sabbath applied to the animals. Lord's concerned about the animals too. Um, Nor the alien who is residing in your gates. So God is also concerned about the foreigner. He's also concerned about the male or female servants. Remember, those would be two, let's say, it could be oppressed classes, if you will. Our human nature loves to do that. God's not condoning having servants or slaves. He's recognizing the fact that people did. And he says, but you owe them something too. You owe them rights. And in this case, you owe it to them to let them rest on the Sabbath day. And here's why, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. In this way the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Ezekiel 20, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them so that they could know that I, the Lord, am the one who sanctifies them. Again, letting the Lord do the work. So how are the people blessed on the Sabbath? They got to rest. Now what should you do with that rest? What should you do with the break that you have? Shouldn't you spend it with the Lord? Of course you should. Now on page 60, God commanded the people of Israel to rest from their weekly work and worship him. Again, Leviticus 23. They were to rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath. The Sabbath, as a day of rest, reminded them that God worked six days to create the world, and he rested on the seventh day, or the Sabbath. So if it's good for God, it's good for you and me too. The rest God commanded for them made them different from other nations and also reminded them that they were a special people he had set apart from all the nations to fulfill his promise of a Savior. Lastly, the Sabbath reminded them of the great spiritual rest the Savior would bring, rest for their souls, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see what is prefigured, what is shadowed, foreshadowed in this commandment? Again, you go back before the time of Jesus Christ, and these commandments have a shadow aspect. They foreshadow what is coming. They point ahead to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So why did God have this third commandment, and how did it point ahead to Jesus? It pointed ahead to Jesus because it prefigured, foreshadowed, the rest that the Savior now brings to your soul. Could you imagine if God put a price tag on heaven? You couldn't pay it! Can you imagine if God, in that price tag for heaven, he handed it to you and said, now you got to earn it? You couldn't do it. Because the reality is there is a price tag on heaven. And it was paid by Jesus Christ, your Savior. Jesus Christ, who kept all of the commandments perfectly. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross and announces to you, you are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. God has served you. There is real rest here for your soul. Don't worry. Heaven is guaranteed. Don't worry. Your land in heaven, the deed is titled, the title is signed. The deed is signed in the blood of Jesus Christ with your name. Don't worry. The bank vault with your eternal inheritance in it is Secure, rest from your work. There is no price left for you to pay. There is no field left for you to plow so as to earn heaven. Do you see how at the heart of this commandment is the call to you to rest? To let your soul find rest. Now, of course, where do you find that rest? You find it in the Word of God. So how fitting that when God gives us a break throughout the week, we Christians would say, I can think of nothing better to do than to spend time with my Savior in the Word. Not because I have to, (laughs) not because I'm trying to earn something, but because it has Him serving me. It has him bringing rest to my soul, not the other way around. It has him doing me favors, not the other way around. So that rest that is on the inside in our hearts and souls shows itself on the outside by spending time with the Savior in his word. And, and the same way that this commandment made the, the Israelites different from the other nations, the other hustle and bustle nations, the other sacrifice and slave nations, all of a sudden you see an entire nation, Israelites, a couple million strong in the Old Testament, just taking a rest, taking a break on Saturday, shutting down the town. How different that would have looked. And it's getting to be that way here again too with you and me in 2023. How different it looks when you prioritize a day off, but not just to go to the lake, not just to hang out, but how different do you look when on your day off you put on a collared shirt or a dress And you go to worship, you weirdos. Why? Not because you owe it to God. Not because you're doing Him some sort of favor. Not because you're completing some sort of work for Him. But because you understand that He serves you in the Word. Enjoy your Sabbath rest. And you can enjoy the Sabbath rest by making sure that every single week you are soaking up the fullest of your Sabbath rest by being at worship with other Christians, hearing the Word of God. There is no better way for you to use your Sabbath rest. If your Sabbath rest is on Saturday night, wonderful. Be at the the Word. If your Sabbath rest is Sunday morning, wonderful. Meet with your brothers and sisters at the foot of the cross. If your Saturday rest is Monday night or Wednesday night or whenever, wonderful. Be in worship with your brothers and sisters at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what should that worship look like? Well, that we will talk about, but not today. I've got to leave you on a cliff. But maybe if the cliffhanger that I've left you with is good enough, you will join me again next week as we tune in to hear more about God's Word related to the Third Commandment with me, Pastor Wells. Reach out to me again, podcast, at twice the Lutheran.org. I need your questions. I need your ideas. Friends, a long farewell A sad week till I see you again.